16, I want to read verses 1 through 8. I am aware that tip-off is at noon, and, and I don't care. Mark chapter 16 and verse 1. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray now as we come to your word that you would grant to us grace, grace to see it, grace to enjoy it, grace to embrace it, even the grace, Father, to be utterly shocked by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it never sit so comfortably that we get over the awe and wonder of what happens. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 16 and verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, when I took up the Gospel of Mark 16 months ago, I had no idea it would take 16 months, but when I took it up 16 months ago, I knew that this day would come. Because I knew that at the end of verse 8 in your Bibles is a little parenthetical expression that says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. And I knew I was going to have to think about what I would do. Most evangelical scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark ends with verse 8 and doesn't include verses 9 through 20. They came in ancient and other manuscripts later. Um, and so I had to think about where I would end the Gospel of Mark. At first, I didn't think I'd ever have to end it. I thought Jesus would probably return before <laughs> we were finished, but that didn't happen. So here I find myself now with that little parenthesis staring me in the face. On the one hand, it really doesn't matter that much because, you see, there's nothing in verses 9 through 20 that are heretical, that contradict anything else in the Scripture. That isn't a problem at all. We could preach them uh, as we would preach the other Scriptures, and there's truth there. There's nothing here that's wrong. There's nothing here that's contradicted elsewhere in the Scriptures. There's nothing here that contradicts anything elsewhere in Scripture. So to that degree, it's not a problem. It's just the question, did Mark write it, or is this the uh, writing of a well-intentioned scribe who is filling in some things for us uh, at the end of the Gospel of Mark to perhaps, in his own mind, make it more complete? The difficulty, you see, if we end at verse 8, is that it leaves us with this gospel ending with the women afraid and no resurrection appearances of Jesus. Just stops. And you may say that's really not a problem necessarily because you could go and 
sort of go to Matthew and to Luke and to John and pull from there the various resurrection appearances because they have them. For instance, Matthew tells us that the women left the scene here not only afraid but filled with joy and then they encountered Jesus on the way to tell the disciples. And then, of course, in Matthew, you have the great scene of Jesus as he gives to them the great commission that all authority has been given to him and they're to go and make disciples. And in Luke, we have the, the wonderful uh, incident recorded of two men on this road to Emmaus and Jesus meets up with them and he, he, at first they don't recognize him and then they do and then he leaves in a very miraculous way and eventually with them meets the disciples that evening and he reveals himself to, those, to the disciples uh, as well there in Luke's gospel and he teaches them and then there in Luke's gospel he gives them the great commission in a sense and then he tells them to wait uh, in Jerusalem until they've received power from on high to be his witnesses and then he ascends and then in the gospel of John of course uh, we see Jesus meeting Mary Magdalene in the garden and she thinks that he's the gardener and in a very tender moment he simply says her name he simply says Mary and then she knows it's Jesus. And then later that evening, uh, Jesus meets with the ten disciples. Thomas wasn't with them. He meets with them. And those ten then later tell Thomas. And Thomas, you remember, says, I won't believe until I touch his wounds. And then Jesus appears to Thomas and he touches his wounds and he believes. And then there's that wonderful time in the Gospel of John where Jesus uh, meets with, with Peter. And he, in a sense reinstates Peter and he says go and feed my lambs go and feed my sheep and of course that happens after Jesus cooks breakfast for the disciples on the beach and so there's all those all those times that we could point to so even if Mark's gospel ended at verse 8 we could always bail we could always go to those other gospels and find those resurrection appearances and resurrection accounts but my burden is different perhaps because I have a calling before God to preach not what I wish were here, but what is actually here. And so if, in fact, the Gospel of Mark ends at verse 8, with the women afraid and no resurrection appearances of Jesus, I have to ask the question, why? What did Mark have in mind at that point? Because, you see... We have four Gospels, and it's not a coincidence that we have four Gospels. We have four Gospels for a reason, because each Gospel writer has a purpose. Each Gospel writer has, has, a, has an agenda, has an intention. While they all agree about who Jesus is and what Jesus did, they give us different glances at him. And so we come to know Jesus by looking at all of them. And so I don't want us to miss any uniqueness in Mark just because it would be a lot easier to run to the resurrection appearances of Jesus. So today, I want to ask this question. If Mark's gospel ended at verse 8, which quite frankly, it's likely that it did, but if Mark's gospel ended at verse 8, why? What was his intention? What would we grab from that uniquely from the gospel of Mark that we might miss if we just went on to see in verse 9 and so forth? the resurrection appearances that are there. Are you with me? Do you understand at least where I'm headed? Hello? Okay. I just want to know. That's where I'm headed. I, w- I, want to, I want to see that. Now, before we get to that, 
It's important for us not to miss the obvious in these first eight verses in Mark's Gospel because it's obvious that Mark is telling us that Jesus rose from the dead. There's no question about that. The women go to the tomb thinking they're going to find the body of Jesus, wondering who's going to move the stone. They find the stone moved. They enter in. They see nobody. Nobody. And nobody. And there's an angel there, a man dressed in white. There's an angel there who says, you've come seeking Jesus the Nazarene. He's not here. He's been crucified. He's been dead, but right now he's not here. He is risen. And so you see, Mark tells us very clearly that this messenger from God is here to announce that Jesus has in fact risen. No question about that. So much so, that is to say, so certain is he that Christ is risen, that the instruction comes to these women that they are now to go and to tell the disciples of Jesus, tell the disciples of Jesus that he will meet them in Galilee just like he said. In fact, that is precisely what he said. For instance, in Mark chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said to his disciples, You will fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And so that's precisely the plan that Jesus had already marked out with them. And so the angel says that's what's going to happen. He'll meet you. Tell, these, tell the disciples Jesus will go ahead of them. He'll meet them uh, in Galilee. And so we mustn't miss the fact that Mark is very clear that Jesus has risen from the dead. So if we end in verse 8, we know that. We know that Jesus is risen from the dead. But why? Why do, are the women presented to us at this point frightened? Even Matthew records when they left the scene, they were afraid but filled with joy. But, but not Mark. He just wants to emphasize the fact that they were trembling, bewildered, and afraid. In fact, so much so that they didn't talk about this. They didn't tell anybody. Now, that doesn't mean they never told anybody. It just meant that they didn't talk among themselves as they were leaving, as you would suspect they would do. If I were with a group of people and we went to see a dead man and he wasn't there, and we were told that he was risen, I probably would have turned to the person beside me and gone, you get this? We would have talked some. But they didn't. They're trembling. They're being bewildered. Their fear was such that they just left. Didn't mention any. They didn't talk as they went out. So the question is, why is Mark leave us there? And then, no resurrection appearances. Two things, I think, and this will occupy our time. First, this. The very fact that the women are afraid as they leave, I think, authenticates for us, according to Mark, that they got it, that they understood, that they believed that Jesus really had risen from the dead. And it speaks to us how it is that we're to revere Christ so that we can worship him and walk with him. Let me say that again. I think first that Mark leaving with his gospel the women being afraid, trembling, bewildered, and afraid, authenticates in his mind for us that they really got it, that they really understood, that they really believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. That's why they responded the way they did. And then it gives to us an understanding about how we're to revere Christ and the dimension of reverence for him that we're to have so that we can worship him and walk with him. Now, why do I say that? 
I say that because as we read through the Gospel of Mark, every time Jesus shows himself powerfully, the response of the people in the Gospel of Mark is fear. Turn, for instance, to Mark in chapter 4. In verse 41. Now this is an incident in the life of Jesus, one of which, one for which we're very uh, familiar. Uh, there was, uh, Jesus was in the boat with his disciples. A great storm came up. Jesus, of course, was sleeping. Uh, through this great storm, the disciples were filled with fear through this great storm because a great storm it was. It was rather a mini hurricane. Uh, if it had been on the ocean, it was in a lake, but rather I'm a Florida kid having a mini hurricane right there, uh, on the lake. And it was a terrible storm, filled them with great fear. No doubt they thought they would die. Jesus sleeping in the boat. They go and they they wake Jesus up, as you know. And Jesus gets up, walks up to the front of the boat, and simply says, quiet. And that raging storm calms. Now you see, you and I, have colored that picture. When we were little children in our color Bible story picture books. And we've heard about it so many times that it's kind of ho-hum. It's sort of, yeah, Jesus can calm a storm. Nothing really happens to us when we hear that. But think about those particular disciples on that day. Do you understand what their response was? Notice, in verse 41 it says... They were terrified after Jesus calmed the storm. Now, why would they be terrified after Jesus calmed the storm? Because of this. Because just moments before that, they were utterly afraid of this storm. This storm was stronger than they were. This storm was going to kill them. This storm was huge. And then, all of a sudden, one stronger than the storm, who's right there in their midst, just said, quiet. And the storm stopped. And now they looked at Jesus, and they're more afraid of him than they were of the storm, because he's stronger than the storm. Fear is a very normal reaction in that kind of setting. You see, we don't really, no matter how many times we've colored this as children, we don't really have a category in our brain for someone who can stand in the face of a storm and just say, shush, and it ceases. Do you know anybody like that? Have you ever seen that? What would you do if you did? I think you'd be afraid. Mark says they were afraid. Why? Because they were rational thinking human beings. That's why. And they didn't have a category in their brain for somebody with that kind of power in their very voice. Then take a look in chapter 5 of Mark's gospel. This was a situation where there was a man. He was demon-possessed. Not just your average demon-possessed guy. But this guy was your hyperactive demon-possessed guy. Uh, he, he was filled with legions of demons. More demons than anybody had ever seen anybody be, from, be filled with. And, and so filled with these evil spirits that if they tried to chain him, he'd break the chains. He was so self-destructive that he would throw himself into the fire. He would cut himself and slit himself. And he was, he was, he was mad. No one could contain him. And so Jesus is coming across in the boat. He gets out of the, out of the boat and, and comes up on the shore. And this man filled with demons sees Jesus and confronts him and calls out to him and says, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? Um, uh, swear to God that you won't, uh, you won't torture me. And so this man confronts Jesus. And here is Jesus with his very word 
simply says to the demons, depart. And they do. The proof that they depart is the fact that they all went, these demons, into this herd of pigs. Otherwise, we might not know. They went into this herd of pigs. And this herd of pigs then was controlled by these demons. And the demons took them and ran them off the cliff down into the lake and they drowned. Now, what would have been your reaction on that particular day? Here you are, completely afraid of this demon-possessed man, and now somebody stronger than the demon-possessed man shows up right in the very face of this, and with his word, he, he heals this man completely so that this man is as normal as you and me. And maybe that's not a compliment. More normal than you and me. There he is. Look at their response, verse 15. When they... Uh, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Why? Because they were thinking people. And they did not have a category in their brains for somebody who could do that. Now again, we're very familiar with this. We're very comfortable with that. We say, oh yes, Jesus can do that. And we go on to the next thing. But think about it. Jesus actually did that. Then notice, in verse 17 it says, Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. If he's that strong, if he's that powerful, do they really want him around them? They really want him to be that close. And next there was this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. She had gone to all the doctors available. She had received every treatment that uh, she could have received. It was a great plague to her. She had been bleeding for 12 years. In that culture, that was a horrible thing. It meant she was unclean, not only physically, but in the context of her faith as a Jewish woman. And She was not allowed to have contact because she was always touching blood. But Jesus was on another mission to heal somebody else actually and people were crowded around him and they were moving very quickly. And this woman knew that Jesus was there and she began to think, if only I could just touch him, I'd know I'd be healed. And so so she, in the midst of this crowd, touches him. And of course, Jesus being sensitive to everything, even in the midst of this crowd where people were pushing and shoving, even in the midst of that crowd, Jesus said, who touched me? His disciples were amazed at him. They said, Jesus, how can you tell one person touching you? Everybody's touching everyone here. She said, no, 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 I felt power be released. Who's, who's touched me? And this woman comes forward and notice in verse 33, verse 32, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. She was afraid at that point. Why? Because he was this man who was so powerful and so great that all one had to do is touch the very hem of his robe and this ailment that no one could heal was healed. She stopped bleeding at that moment in time. And again, rather ho-hum for us, isn't it? But it actually happened. It filled her with fear. Notice then in chapter 6, the situation, again, the disciples on a boat, they're going across the Sea of Galilee, going across what's called the lake here. And, and, and again, a big storm comes up. They're moving across. They need to get to the other side. A big storm comes up and they're facing it. And so they begin to row furiously. Jesus wasn't with them at the time. He had stayed back on the shore. He sees this great event take place in the life of his disciples. And so he decides to join them. And so he walks out on the water. Now, we're pretty comfortable with Jesus walking on water, but, you know, it never happened before. I don't know that they'd had that in their mind after seeing all this. I don't think the disciples sat around and said, I bet he can walk on water, too. (laughs) 
It just wouldn't come to mind that he can walk on water too. Nobody's ever seen anybody walk on water before or since, really. And so, notice verse 50. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Of course you'd be terrified. You're in a boat. Somebody's walking beside the boat. People don't say, I'm going to go out and take my boat for a walk today. I mean, really, we don't have that in our minds. Who can do that? They were terrified. You see, every time in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is seen, and people get it, who he is, really, not just some guy, but the very Son of God. They're terrified because they have no category in their brain for that. Then chapter 9 and verse 6. There was a day that came up in the lives of Jesus. He takes Peter, James, and the life of Jesus. He takes Peter, James, and John with him up on a little mountain. And then they witnessed something that was amazing. Moses and Elijah come. It doesn't happen every day for me. They weren't expecting Moses and Elijah to come. But there they were. And then Jesus is transfigured before their very eyes. Transfigured to go across his figure. To, to move across a figure, transfigured. He no longer is simply the physical Jesus before them, but he's Jesus in glory. The glorious Jesus. One they had never seen before. One they had no category in their brains to even see. If they had been asked to draw that, they wouldn't have known what to draw. But yet they see Jesus at that point. And of course, Peter says something stupid. Admittedly, Mark does. He says, oh, let's just stay here and worship. The Lord, tent for each of you. Parenthetically, Mark writes in chapter 9 and verse 6, he, meaning Peter, did not know what to say. They were so frightened. See, that's always Mark's word. They got it. They understand. They, they understand that what has taken place is something unimaginable, something that no one would have ever thought could have ever happened. They're seeing something that had never taken place before. They're seeing something that had never happened before and something they had never even imagined before. They just don't have a category in their brain for it. And so you see, when the women come to the tomb and they're frightened, of course they are. And you say, but didn't Jesus say very often that he was going to go to Jerusalem and he would be betrayed and that he would be arrested and he would be tried by the, by the chief priests and the teachers of the law? And he'd be beaten, and that he would be killed, and he would arise again on the third day? Yes, he said that very often. You say, well, didn't the women remember it? Perhaps, but they didn't understand it. Who would? Had they ever known of anyone rising like that on the third day under his own power from the tomb? Notice. Chapter 9, verse 30. Then they left. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him, How weird is this? He now says he's going to rise after three days. What could that mean? And if you'd have said, well, it means he's going to get killed and three days later he's going to come back to life, they would have said, 
Nah. It couldn't mean that. I mean, it just couldn't. But yet fear grips them because Jesus is so different, so amazing, so astounding. And so now you see the women, they come to the tomb not because they didn't know it, but because they didn't get it, they didn't understand it. And they come to the tomb fully prepared to see Jesus. Think about this. Have you ever gone to a funeral? And when you do, you fully expect, and I'm not trying to be flippant here, but you fully expect the body to be there. You fully expect the dead person, because you're going to a funeral, to still be dead. But if you got there, and the dead person wasn't dead, you don't even think about that. They didn't even think about that on the way. They'd gotten the spices. They would have done this before, but Jesus died right before the Sabbath, and so they couldn't. So they had to wait until the Sabbath was over. So the evening, Saturday evening, they went out and put all the spices together. So they came to anoint Jesus' body for his burial to sweeten it because it was dead and would smell. So in honor of him, they came. They began to think as they went, who's going to move the stone? Good thing nobody told them about the guard and the seal. Who's going to move the stone? But as they were thinking that, they realized the stone is moved. They're thinking, good. This will help us. We'll be able to go in, get the body of Jesus, anointed as we should. So they go in and they see an angel, the messenger of God, and they don't see Jesus. And he said, listen, he's risen. And at that moment in time, no matter what you think you may feel, my suspicion is fear would grip your soul because you're standing right in the midst of the unimaginable. Right in the midst of that which could never take place. Right in the midst of that which you would never think that a dead man that you saw just the day before yesterday die on a cross, beaten, brutalized, die, is alive. Not just spiritually alive. Because he's spiritually alive. Well, you know, the spirit leaves the body, but the body stays. We're comfortable with that. But the body's not here. The body is risen. That's what gripped them. They knew it. William Lane, a commentator of some note, writes this concerning the Gospel of Mark. He says, Those who are confronted with God's direct intervention in the historical process do not know how to react. Divine revelation lies beyond normal human experience. There are no categories available to men which enable them to understand and respond appropriately. The first human response is overwhelming fear. Fear is the constant reaction to the disclosure of Jesus' transcendent dignity in the Gospel of Mark. And here we have it again. And so Mark is simply saying to us, they got it. They understood it. They saw it in its fullness. And you know what my fear is for us? Is that we're so accustomed to this. That we're so okay with this. That we're so used to this. That it's just old hat. Then we think about Jesus walking on the water. We say, could I have the blue crayon for the water? You know, it's just normal. And we miss the great drama. We miss the great awesomeness. We miss the great power. We miss the great mystery of Jesus. And we think about the tomb being empty. We go, oh yeah, that's Easter. And we forget how awesome that is. Because you see... When Jesus died on the cross for the sins of sinners, he was able to rise again from the dead for a very specific reason. The very specific reason that he was able to rise from the dead was, number one, it wasn't his sins for which he died, and number two, his father accepted his sacrifice. 
Because you see, the cause of death is not cancer. The cause of death is not heart disease. The cause of death is not accidents. The cause of death ultimately at its very source is sin in the context of the human race. Before sin, there was no death. You remember, God said to uh, Adam in Genesis in chapter 1, he said, And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Before this, no death. And death has two dimensions. Death has a physical dimension. The physical dimension of death is when your body is separated from life. You stop breathing. You're dead. Separation from life. But there's a spiritual dimension of death as well. And that is when you are separated, when your soul is separated from the life, spiritual life, that comes from God. And when a person is separated from God spiritually, dead to God spiritually, it means you're under his wrath. Under his judgment, you're not experiencing life from him. And Jesus experienced both of those dimensions on the cross. He died physically, but also upon the cross, he cries out to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment in time, he's experiencing the spiritual separation from his father. So he's dying completely, physically, spiritually. But he doesn't stay dead. Why? Because it wasn't his sins for which he died. They're sins of others, the sins of human beings, those for whom he died, those who would believe in him. You know, when you go into the store these days, some stores, they have little devices on the things you purchase. They have little devices on the things you purchase, so if you go out of the store without purchasing them, bells and whistles go off. Well, you see, when Jesus died, he paid for the sins of sinners so that he could leave. He was free to go. And he was free to go with all the merchandise. He was free to go with for all those for whom he died. And so he was raised to life. How would these women know that? How could they get that? But that's the amazing truth. A friend wrote to me this week, he wrote this, he said, if we pew-sitters, and I assume he meant me too, uh, <clears throat> no, I don't, we don't really have pews. If we chair-sitters are not overwhelmed by the gospel, by the truth of Christ, something spiritual is lacking in our lives. It is too much to have any less effect. Oh, I pray that we don't get accustomed to it. That it always amazes us. But my second point is this, and it will be shorter. Second point is this, that Mark ends this gospel with no resurrection appearances. Because you see, we don't need any resurrection appearances. In fact, none of us, physically with our own eyes, has had a resurrection appearance of Jesus. But we all, but most of us, I would think, believe. How can that be? Mark is just saying you don't need the resurrection I don't need to put the resurrection appearances in there to convince you because I've already given you the word of the messenger of God the messenger of God the angel said he has risen that's enough how did you come to faith someone told you about Jesus you read about Jesus in the Bible you heard about Jesus 
and you heard that he died on the, sin, on, on the cross for sins, the sins of sinners, and he was raised from the dead, and you believed. Have you ever seen him? Ever had an appearance of Jesus like that? No. They're nice. We read about them in the Bible. I'm glad they're there in the other Gospels. But you know what? Mark's Gospel isn't incomplete because he doesn't have them. Because he has the declaration, the word that says, He is risen. It's that word. Because you see, Christianity is a revealed religion. And it's revealed to us through God's word. He declares it to us. He says, this is the truth. And the word of God is so powerful that it can actually change people's lives. And so when that word is declared, people's lives are changed. For instance, Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John in chapter 17 prays this. He prays, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus has already prayed this up. Jesus has said, I'm not only praying at this moment in time for my disciples, the guys that are here right now, but I'm also praying for all those who will believe through those message, through their message. Do you know who that is? That's us. Jesus was praying for us. Jesus was praying for all those who believe in him through the declared word that says he is risen. He didn't say, I'm going to pray for all those who will see me in my risen state. But all those who will hear it declared. And then he gives them the great commission and he says, go declare it. He says, wait for power from on high so you can be my witnesses, so you can declare it. In fact, the very words out of their lips in every sermon throughout the book of Acts is, here's Jesus, you crucified him. God raised him from the dead. There is forgiveness of sins. Trust in him. Just the declaration. They didn't bring a slideshow. They didn't say, wait a minute, Jesus is going to make an appearance here in a minute so you'll be convinced of this. It was just the declaration of the word. So when I read to you this morning from Isaiah 55, where God says, my word will not return to me void, but it will accomplish that for which I intend it. He says, my word is powerful. Do you remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? Great scene with the Baal worshippers, the prophets of Baal. And he says, okay, let's set up a couple of altars and see whose God shows up. It's really cool. And, 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 and the, 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 the Baal worshippers set it up, but nothing happens. And so Elijah takes his altar and he pours tons of water on it. He steps back and God comes and goes, push, lights it. God's word is like that. It's as if we stand in the whole world declaring the truth about Jesus. And everybody's declaring the truth of their gods, but it doesn't bring life. And we stand and we declare the truth of Christ. And we watch it. It brings life. Because it's powerful and it's strong. And you know what the irony of this whole incident is? It was the women. Do you understand that in the days of Jesus, a woman couldn't even testify in a court of law. She would not be believed. Why is that important? It has nothing to do with feminists and stuff. What it has to do with is that he says, I'm going to declare my truth through the lowest ones in the society. That's how powerful my word is. I don't need big shots. 
I don't need famous people. I just need regular people. I have this sort of, well, it's not going to be silent anymore. I'm going to tell you. I have this quiet rebellion that goes on in me. That when famous people get saved and they go around the country, I don't go. Because there's just something that's, I don't think, healthy about that. Because that says, you know, a successful person's sports figure, businessman, whatever, a successful person's testimony is more powerful than somebody else's. But you know, it isn't. And in fact, in God's economy, he takes the women. He takes people that weren't respected at all in the culture at that moment in time. And he says, I'm going to deposit my truth with them. I'm just going to give them this one word from this one angel that says, He is risen. And I'm going to say to these lowly ones in the culture where nobody's going to believe, I'm going to set them out and it'll set the world on fire. Why? Because Mark knows that the fact that Jesus has risen is true. And that fact should shock our souls. And all we need, because the word of God is powerful, is a declaration of that word. So let me end with this. In Acts chapter 13, the apostle is preaching. The apostle Paul is preaching. And he says this, brothers, verse 26 Children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised to our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words. I will give you the Holy One, the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care of what the prophets have, have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. But someone has told you. And I pray that we never take it for granted that it always shocks our very souls. And we receive this declaration as it comes from God with great power to change our lives, that we would believe. Let's pray. Father in heaven.
And thank you for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that we might revere him and all of his fullness with all the great seriousness and fear and joy that you're worth. And I pray too that we would declare this word with our very lives and lips so that people would clearly hear it that Christ is Lord, that sins have been in him forgiven, and that he has risen. So I pray, Father, that you would empower that word through us, day in and day out, from the lowest one amongst us to the highest. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that there will be elders available to pray. Please take advantage of that. I remind you, too, of our dinner theater coming up, if you would take care of all the business related to that, if you will, uh, today. The response to the benediction is, praise be to God. Amen. When you say that, you're saying, yes, the fact of the resurrection of Jesus is everything. And when you say amen, you say, yes, so be it. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenants, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. Amen.